Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome to a very special episode of the Superhumanize podcast. Our guest today is someone who doesn't need an introduction for those in the know, but for those who aren't yet aware, prepare to be truly inspired. We are so honored to have with us today Dr. Gladys McGarry, a truly groundbreaking pioneer and an extraordinary soul. She's known around the world as the mother of holistic medicine, co-founder of the American Holistic Medical Association, and the driving force behind the Foundation for Living Medicine. Today, at the vibrant age of 102, Dr. Gladys continues to illuminate the path to wellness, not just by treating disease, but by nurturing the entirety of the human experience, body, mind, and soul. She started practicing medicine in a time when women couldn't even have their own bank accounts, an emblem of resistance and resilience in a male-dominated field. Her life has been an adventurous journey, one that has taken her from early childhood in the jungles of India to a transformative encounter with Mahatma Gandhi to a thriving medical career and motherhood of six. She has navigated personal heartbreaks and illnesses with grace and courage, transforming each experience into a stepping stone, a lesson learned, a guide to others. Now she shares her wisdom with us, the wisdom gathered over more than a century of life and decades of medical practice, the wisdom that has informed her six life-enhancing secrets to a long, joyous, and purpose-driven life. In her new book, The Well-Lived Life, 102-Year-Old Doctors, Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age, she speaks of embracing vitality, moving in mind, body, and spirit, finding purpose, cultivating community, learning from setbacks, and most importantly, the power of love in healing. As Dr. Gladys tells us, love is the greatest healer. In the following conversation, we discuss the evolution and future of holistic medicine and how each of us can create a healthier, more joyous future for ourselves and our world. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Dr. Gladys, it is such an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much for making time for us. I'm so honored to be able to do this. Yes. You're, you are such an inspiration to myself and I know to countless others. You have touched so many people's lives amongst other you are known as and called the mother of holistic medicine. You just have had an incredible career and also your beingness as a human being, what you have seen, what you've changed, what you've inspired. 
You are just amazing. And one of the things that really just put such joy in my heart was that at a 102 years old, you actually have a 10-year plan. So this uh -huh. to me is just so beautiful. Uh -huh. and I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about this. This 10-year plan is specifically focused on something you're very passionate about, the foundation for living medicine. And I really envision a village for living medicine, a place on this earth where people who really believe in the essence of our being are want to live together with people who also feel that way so that the whole structure of the village becomes maybe a garden of Eden, who knows, but something, some, and it can be any place on the earth where a group of people like-minded people are looking for their true humanity, reclaiming their true humanity. And in the process of doing that, we love each other. That is a beautiful vision and mission, Dr. Gladys. And when you talk about reclaiming our true humanity, this is something I would like to talk about in a little more depth. What do you personally believe and have experienced is the core of our humanity, our true humanity? I think life and love are the things that are so real. But here's the thing. I think that, and this is just my own idea, that I, when God created us and he created the universe and he created everything else as around He said to us humans, now I've given you free will and choice, and nobody, not, nothing else has that. So you now have dominion over the earth. And we, in our arrogance, thought, he said, you have dominance over the earth. Therefore, we thought, we, oh, this is good. We can do anything we want to with that. And that's pretty much what we've done. But now people are beginning to say, and Mother Earth is telling us that, no, you got it wrong. And then I'm finding that not only me and my friends are really beginning to reach for their true humanity, but the new kids, little people who are coming in are saying the most amazing things. But people who are desperately striving and struggling are looking for something for hope and for love and for caring and it's a it's really another i think covid was a it was a bad thing like so many bad things but out of the bad things come some of the most amazing things and i think when we had to go back home and sit and contemplate what it is that was going on, other things began to come up. The things that we had tried to forget and cover up popped out of the corners, and we had to begin to say, uh-uh, there's more to this than, that, than we meets the eye. 
Yes, Dr. Gladys, what you say resonates deeply. And I also believe that love is the strongest force in the universe. And when we can reconnect with that self-love, especially, I think a lot of us have lost that connection, self-love, love for our beautiful Mother Earth and for others, we are unstoppable also as a species and as a force for good. I really like what you said about dominion and dominance that really very vividly describes in two words what has been happening. And a lot of us feel that we're really at a point in time of human history that is that will profoundly change the journey of humanity, depending on which direction we take. One direction leads to destruction, basically the extinction of our species, and the other to what you, for example, describe and as a vision for the Foundation for Living Medicine, a, a society, a global society of peace. You strike me as someone who has always believed in the latter. And I would like to know from you, Dr. Gladys, what inspires you and what has fueled your mission throughout your life? I was blessed with parents who had a enough of a vision that they actually not only got degrees as osteopaths, in 1912 and 1913, no, 1911 and 1912, that they then went to India to take their understanding and their caring to the villages of North India, not to the big temples. Sure, my mother went to labor at the Taj Mahal with me, but that I think is just because she's a drama queen. <laughs> anyway. It was, they took it to the poorest of the poor, the ones that were the cow herding the buffaloes and that kind of thing. And these people were the ones that they loved enough to be bringing what they could in the way of healing to them. Now, they didn't have much in the way of equipment. They had a trunk that had some things in it that they could use and so on. And they had a tent. And we lived in a tent and and all of that. But they didn't have the equipment and the staff and everything to do the things that we feel in our huge hospitals are absolutely essential. Because what my parents were doing was not trying to get rid of disease and pain, but trying to help the people. and. That meant sometimes you were able to get rid of the disease and pain, but sometimes you weren't. But what you did do was give the people a sense that they were important. And all of a sudden, love came into their lives, and wow, life was worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a, I must have, at a soul level, chosen them as parents because they were so pivotal in setting me in the right, what I call the right direction. And that has always been fueled by love, 
And okay. and I think what you are saying is so profoundly true. Once love finds its way in to no matter how dire a situation, it will change things. It may not fix the problems or maybe not immediately or not at all, but a profound shift happens from which then the individual sees and experiences themselves in a completely different way, also in the context of this world. And that alone, I personally believe, is a very deep healing that takes place. Director of one of the big hospitals here in town <clears throat> a few years back, before COVID and all that, asked me how I could see how the different disciplines like holistic medicine and functional medicine and osteopathy and chiropractic and so on could fit into the structure of a hospital. And I said, I don't really think it's the modality that's important because any modality that is used and in the with the attitude of love and caring can do the do what's needed for that patient at that time so that they can continue with their life however that may go roosevelt had post polio syndrome all his life he was in pain constantly he did what he had to do and i have so many patients who have been what i call patients of living medicine they've lived with this either a pain or some issue that has been really hard, you would never know. I have this one patient, she's still in her late 70s, and she's had pain all her life. She really has lived with pain, but she's an artist, she's a painter. And so what she, when pain hits, she grabs her her paints, her and she'll paint anything. She'll paint the wall. She'll paint the her shoes or her, her purse or her skirt or whatever. But she will paint until she says the ting comes in. She the painting. When it becomes her, when her paints become a painting, then she can deal with the pain. It's still there. She knows it's there, but she can put it into structure of what she's doing and how she's working. And she's an absolutely awesome woman. And there, there are people like, I just, I have one patient who just died in her late 70s about a month ago. She lived with one quarter of one kidney all her life. That's not possible. All of us who worked with her have said, how have you done this? She doesn't really know, but she knows what she can do to keep her body healthy and what she couldn't do to keep her body healthy. A lot of what she couldn't do was take some of the medications or do some of the procedures. She just refused, but she did what she could do and she knew what she could do. This kind of living examples of people who really understand themselves and the world around them enough to put their energy into that is just it's awe-inspiring those are two incredible stories you share dr gladys and i would be remiss if i would not point out that 
these incredible human beings, your two patients, also have or have had, in the case of the second example, an incredible healer to help them on their path, which is you. And what you mentioned just a few minutes ago, when you shared that talking with somebody high up at a big hospital chain, I think I can imagine which one it is, especially you being in Scottsdale, that the modality doesn't matter so much, but what matters is the love and basically the presence you as a doctor bring to a patient. Now, unfortunately today, due to just how our Western medical system is structured, even a lot of times, even if doctors want, they have very little time for patients. There's a lot of pressure on, on, on doctors and the connection, the connecting from one human being to another, being there present with love as a doctor towards the patient and the patient's needs, it just, it's very, it often just doesn't happen. I've witnessed that myself with people who I'm very close to and who are going through severe medical issues. And so what can we do if we are, for example, the patients and due to circumstance, due to how our medical system works currently. And we just cannot find somebody who can, aside from the good medical advice and help, who can be with us in that way. It's. Let me tell you another story, because this is my oldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. And when he'd finished his training, he came through Phoenix and he said to me, Mom, I'm really scared. He said, I'm going into the world because he was going down to Del Rio, Texas, where he was going to start his practice. And he says, I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that your job is to do the job you've been trained to do, and that's awesome. If we need surgery, orthopedic surgery or something like that, I want a good orthopod to do that work. I want somebody who understands what it, and so on. But after you've done, or as you have done that, if you can understand that within that patient is your real colleague, the person that connects with you, the physician within that patient is the one that can actually do the healing. So you in ba basically what you do is turn the healing process over to your colleague who is the physician within that patient and the two of you work together. It's what the my patient that with the one half quarter kidney did. <laughs> The people, the doctors that she worked with were the ones who could really begin to see what she was actually doing. And we fell in love with the doctor within that patient. It's that to have a colleague that is available is something that is awesome. And that's the thing that, that we've lost in the field of medicine. We've continually forgotten that. In fact, when I went to medical school, I was sent to the psychiatrist two different times because the 
dean of our school. I went to Women's Medical College in Philadelphia during the war. And but she felt that I actually really had things upside down and didn't understand I something wrong with me because I kept asking these questions. And so what she they really didn't understand because everything that we were taught during the war was to get rid of get killed disease and get rid of pain. Women were doing what we were doing with birthing. And my first two sons were born with twilight sleep, which meant that you put the patient out. She was completely anesthetized. And so, of course, she can't push the baby out. So we used forceps. And I was really good. I could help a mother birth baby with an after-coming head with forceps. You learned how to do these things. And for years after I got to understanding some of the things that we did, I was horrified. On the other hand, I learned that something that I think is really important, that we have to learn what we need to learn in order to teach what we need to teach. Because if I hadn't learned that, I wouldn't have learned, been able to really work with women because I'm so passionate about birth. I think the whole concept of loving birth. And I think what we've done is to take away the power from women to even believe that they can birth babies. In fact, we talk about delivering babies. We don't deliver babies. We deliver pizzas and we deliver speeches. Women birth babies. But we it's once we learn that lesson, we can teach people. But if I hadn't gone through the process of learning what I learned and thinking, yeah, that was the only way I could do it. They were so anesthetized. It was really. So we did what we had to do. And when I went to Afghanistan, I was able to help the women there because they were their maternal birth death rate was higher than any place in the world. And my brother, who who had has started the what's it future generations around the world, had working with people who were working with life itself, asked me to come over to Afghanistan and I was able to work. But it's the ability to understand something that goes beyond what seems normal. We were caught when we started the American Holistic Medical Association. I'm not even going to try to tell you the names we were called <laughs> because we were crazy. Wow. This is, it's really the mind boggles if you look at how certain things were handled back in the day, but also today. And you, Dr. Gladys, touched upon something really important, and that is that so many women feel disempowered from this beautiful divine process called birth, bringing a human being into this world. And I've heard discussions over years between people, friends, who are, and I'm very glad we have the hospital system, we have the, yeah. that's available to us, that's wonderful. However, what really is surprising to me and also gives pause for thought is I have friends who 
have consciously cultivated in themselves the sense of feeling empowered. They want to do a home birth. Of course, they also make sure that they have medical backup and all that. But oftentimes when women talk about that, I want to do a birth on my terms, how it feels good to me, that it's met with a lot of resistance and also real arguments develop. Oh, you betcha. We start, I was, I had my last two babies when we came to Phoenix and I had a home birth with both of them because I had been really understanding what I had been trying to understand about the whole birthing process and about the home births and so on. And I knew about my own births and that. And in the 70s, we created a birthing, well, we call it the baby buggy. It was a huge van equipped with equipment that we could transport the patient, the baby or the mother, whichever one we would need to. And we the midwife, either she or I, drove the van to the home where the baby was going to be born and parked it in front of the house. And I'm telling you, that brought communities together. It was so much fun because if that fan, if a woman went into labor and went into the hospital, nobody would know about it in the neighborhood until who knows when. But if you parked that big baby buggy out in front because it had a huge stork painted on the side and so on, everybody in the neighborhood knew what was going on in that house. And so it really did bring to communities together. But it was an amazing time for that we were able to actually do these home births here in Phoenix. And it was it, it was a good thing. It was a really good thing. Yes. And what you just said about communities coming together, if you look back at how our ancestors lived, giving birth was also in most cases something where the tribe was aware, maybe even partook. There was people around. It was not something that was moved to a completely different environment. Let's say like we do it today, a hospital. And like you said, the neighborhood wouldn't be even aware of what's happening. And I think these types of events, when communities in some sense participate, even if it's just knowing, ah, in that house, a birth is taking place, that can bring communities together. That's just something I feel that is innate in our human nature. I think we just can't help but connect and feel a little closer. One, it took me 12 years to get husbands into the delivery room. We just worked and worked. And then one time at John C. Lincoln, I had a family where there were six other kids, but they got to, I, I, they were in the room in the hospital when their seventh child came in. And as soon as that baby was born, they started singing happy birthday. And I started crying and the nurses were crying. Everybody's crying. It was just one of those wonderful things that I still remember. It was an extension of when I worked with the birthing process. And I swear, when those that baby is in my hands, I swear the angels sing. It's a huge, different dimension 
of life itself. And it's real. That's absolutely wonderful. Dr. Gladys, if there's something that you would like to impart on women out there who either are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant and something that can help them if they so desire to reconnect to that feeling of empowerment with regards to giving birth, what would that be? It's their job to do it. (laughs) And let me say something to build up to this. I think about a lot of things. One of the things that I've structured for myself, and it's helped, is five L's that help me structure what's going on. The first L is life. Life by itself can't do anything. You can have a seed in the pyramid for 5,000 years and nothing happens until water and sunshine and so on activates the seed by cracking the shell and all the energy of the universe then is able to live. So life and love are two essential parts of my five L's that I think make sense to me. Okay, those two together, they can't function, they can, but they don't function without each other. Because if life can't get activated, and the only thing that that activates life is love, no matter how it's presented. But love, the Bible starts out with God is love kind of idea. So love is the activating factor for life. So those two go together. They don't move. The third is laughter. Laughter without love is cruel. It's mean. It it hurts people. But laughter with love is joy and happiness. The fourth one is labor. Labor without love is, oh, I got to go to work. This is too hard. Too many diapers. It's just too much. But labor with love is bliss. It's why you do what you do. It's why singers sing. It's why painters paint. It's that element of ourselves, which actually, I think bliss is the best word for art. The fifth one is listening. Listening without love is empty sound. You just don't hear what the other person's saying. You don't even hear what you're saying. You don't even recognize that you have a voice. I took me a long time. But it's that listening is a really important aspect because if you listen properly, you understand. So understanding comes with listening. So these five wells give me a structure to build on when I'm trying to figure things out in the world. And it's been very helpful to me. Thank you, Dr. Gladys. Those are really, that's wonderful, practical advice. I really love these five L's and you can apply those to pretty much anything. Also, whether I was just thinking whether you're going through something like pregnancy, life changes, whether you're working with somebody also to heal them 
You are the co-founder of the American Holistic Medical Association, and you have had a very long and very successful career. And from the things that we've been talking about here, you've seen a lot of change. And I'm curious, I'd like to know, in your experience over all these many decades, what are what do you count amongst the most significant changes or advancements that you've witnessed in the field? It's hard to put anything in that context because there are so many things that depending on how they're presented and how they're used are totally different from how they could be used. So it's not, I don't think conventional medicine is wrong. I think conventional medicine is there, and when it's used properly, it's awesome. I think hospitals are there, but I think that the reason hospitals are there, they don't quite understand. I was walking down the hall of one of our beautiful hospitals here in Phoenix, and one day years ago, a number of years ago, and I stopped and I said, this is the Art is beautiful, just beautiful, a temple to the goddess disease and it disease and pain. And disease, what conventional medicine is stuck with is getting rid of disease and pain. And when we started the American Holistic Medical Association, <laughs> it took us two years to figure out how to spell holistic because the word that we were looking for, the core word, was health, healing. And it was just the right word had to start with an L, with R. You had to have, so the holistic had to be with an R. And then after years and years of working with that and being pushed, people trying to figure out what people were saying and all. And so there were others like functional medicine and so on, words that came up to, that actually helped to understand another aspect of it. And I was in the grocery store here with my cart pushing it around one day about 10 years ago. I don't know more than that. And I heard over the PA system, the hardware store down the street announcing itself as a holistic hardware store. And I stopped my cart and I said, there you have it. They, the word has become a household word, but they don't know what it is. They don't know what it means. So that's when I started using the word living medicine. Because living medicine, to me, put some life into it for one thing, but it's more understanding. It's a growing process. We, But the beautiful thing about it is that we had to work with holistic medicine long enough that we could actually understand what we were trying to say about living medicine. So it's this awesome process of learning what you need to learn so that you can teach what you need to teach. That whole trajectory of what this whole thing is about, I think, is amazing. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is that it seems like a lot of 
people in the field, great medical doctors who have been trained the conventional Western medicine way, a lot of them are now actively seeking to add on to their knowledge and bring in knowledge from it could be traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, to have a more holistic, integrative approach. I think that is really wonderful and gives a lot of hope also for the future of medicine. I would like to know from you, Dr. Gladys, what are some of the things that you are most excited about within the realm of healing and what we may experience okay. maybe in the next 10 years? Okay. One of the things that I am really excited about is, first of all, to give background here, I have worked with my dreams and my patients' dreams and people's dreams for years and years and found them to be tremendously helpful. And about, oh, I guess, eight years ago or something like that, I woke up one morning with a crash, and it was when I woke up, I was in the dream, but I wasn't completely in the dream. But I saw myself in the high Himalayas in a valley. And on the right-hand side, there was a young woman just splayed out on the ground, just barely breathing. And on the left-hand side, there was a huge man in armor and in the same position, just barely breathing. And the Words came to me, these two have been fighting each other like this, plus fists together. It's time they did this, put their fingers together. And then when I woke up, I realized that the girl, the woman, was on the right-hand side, which is the masculine side. And the guy was on the left-hand side, the feminine side. And they were almost killing each other. And we've really not accepted or understood the importance of understanding who we are as individual people. And so I had a friend, Rosalie Dearhart in Virginia Beach, and I called her. She's a dear, she's a psychic and so on. So we were talking. And she says, and we got to talking about manifestation, how things manifest. And she says, I've been thinking about another word. She says, the word femifestation, I think, is a good word. And I think it's terrific yes. because I've been using it ever since. Manifestation is Jacob's ladder. You get your degree, you start your practice, you buy a house, you just take one step, one step, one step, you climb the ladder. Yeah. Benifestation is a spiral. You can be on the fifth rung of the spiral and know what's going on at the second rung. And those two aspects of our being have actually been fighting each other, and we totally under misunderstand. We think we have to manifest things you do. How do you manifest them? And then and the and then we get into trouble. And it's so misunderstood because if we truly femifest and femifest our ability and then match it with what's going on in the manifestation aspect, we can get a 
nice flow, like, for instance, a pregnancy. A pregnancy is a total manifestation. For nine months, you and your baby are one. You're not separated. You're totally one. The baby eats what you eat and so on. So the total manifestation of pregnancy is the ultimate, for I think, in manifestation. But when the baby takes his first breath, he has to claim the manifestation, whether boy or girl, he has to manifest his reality and take his first breath. I think that's why I hear angels sick. It's that kind of a reality of moving into, okay, we're living in a two-dimensional world. The sun gets up and goes down. The sun and moon, all of these two-dimensional things that we live with, but we are living examples of that two dimension. And we have diminished our understanding <clears throat> of our own power by trying to manifest. Forget the manifest. Find out the whole manifestation so that you can use it so that when the, it's ready to be manifested, it can take its first breath. Beautiful. This is fascinating, Dr. Gladys. First, the dream that you had. I love that you also work with dreams with your patients. And what you brought up in the dream also reminded me of right brain, left brain. Uh -huh. And something I recently read when they actually scanned individuals who were extremely well practiced in meditation. So they actually took monks that were master meditators. They scan their brains as they're meditating. And apparently in that state of profound meditation, and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, they are in what's called a gamma state, the state yeah. of profound bliss and joy. And that usually scientists can only measure very briefly, maybe for a few seconds at most, in others, but these individuals who are master meditators actually sustain this state for a long time. And what I've gathered from this information that I recently just took a deeper dive into is that it's also thought that when you are in this gamma state, that your right and left brain hemispheres, in a sense, fuse. So that, so just that popped back up in my mind when you were describing this dream and also when you were saying instead of fighting this heavily armored man and the young woman, they linked together. Yes. Fighting. What a profound mm -hmm. change of state that would be. I love the name of your friend, the psychic. It also happens to be the name of my beloved mother-in-law. Her name is also Rosalie. Oh. And she she moved recently, but she actually comes from Virginia Beach. Maybe she is a person. May I her name is Draper. Last name is Draper. She's not a working psychic, but and she is 86 years old now. So I wonder if they may have ever come across each other. That I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> just on a yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's uh yeah. Names are important. Yes. <laughs> Yes, there's power in names. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yes. 
our brains are so amazing. When I was little, I thought my life was bliss. I loved living in the jungles and all that. I had freedom. I just, but when I started school, total disaster because I was so dyslexic that the, the, the I knew the alphabet and I knew what one, two, three, four, I knew all that stuff. But when I tried to read it, they were all moving all over the page. I was so severely dyslexic that I absolutely could not read. So I flunked first grade, and then I had to repeat it, and I still couldn't read. And the teacher that I had at that time thought I was totally stupid, and she called me in the class dummy and so on and so forth. So for two years, I was subjected to that kind of thing, which I fought taught it. <laughs> I fought the ones that said things and I put it wasn't nice. But at home, it was a whole different story because my mother understood that something was different about me and that was okay. And and then when I moved in, I became, got into third grade, the teacher saw something in me that was different. And so she appointed me class governor because I could talk and I could do things that others didn't think about doing and stuff. And so one at one point, which meant that I was allowed to, my job was to let the student body know what our third grade class was doing. So at this point, there was, we had a play, and the play was part of it, the name of it was The Frog Jumped Over the pool, Pond. And since I was taller than the other kids, because I'd been held back and all that stuff, I was, my mother fixed me a frog suit and dyed it green, and I was a great deal of confidence, stepped out on the stage, and I knew I could do this. Just as I walked onto the stage, I saw my two older brothers in this front seat of the audience. And it just threw me off my pace long enough that instead of jumping over the pond, I landed in it. And so I'm standing in this water. My suit is fading. The greed is fading out of my suit. I'm crying. I can't move. I'm just immobilized standing there and the audience is hysterical they are laughing so hard they're just doubled up laughing and the teacher has to come up and take me off and just lead me off the stage so when we get home we're at the table <laughs> and my brothers are telling my mother about this wonderful fat fast as laugh 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 I'm trying to give them the devil's eye, and they're not paying any attention. And finally, my mother says, all right, boys, now, you've had your fun. But what can we do as a family to help Gladys if this ever happens again so that she'll be able to get people to laugh with her, not at her? And it totally changed things, because with this dyslexia issue thing, you're not quite can get off balance easily. The right and left are these are things you have to just kind of work with. 
and all through my life, I've there have been times when I've started up on to a stage and I've tripped and I've fallen, but I've always been able to get up and say something so that I have immediately the audience is in my hands, like saying something like, oh, I'm such a drama queen, and then just do this. And then then I don't have to say anything else. I get right into what I'm trying to do. My mother was an amazing person because she understood the stuff I was going through. And she also was the kind of person who all her life no matter how wackadoodle things might be, she could see something funny in them. A week before she died, my dad and my mother and I were sitting out on the porch looking at the garden. And my mother says to my dad, look at that petunia bush. It's got at least 400 blossoms on it. And my dad says, oh, Beth, it doesn't have any more than 40. She says, what's it never zero? But that kind of a sense of humor is the kind of thing that actually I know saved my life because I was able to catch that and use it. I've been able to use it ever since. Humor is so very important. It's also like love, and especially when humor is combined with love, it is profoundly healing. And thank you for sharing these stories from your childhood and also your mother. Just the way she handled that situation, telling your brothers, okay, you had your fun, but not ripping their head off, heads off and instead bringing them together. Now, how can we as a family make this better going forward for Gladys is incredible. How aware as a, what aware, love-filled parenting. There's so many things in our lives that can be traumatic, smaller traumas, big, profound traumas. There can be so many things that are roadblocks. You yourself have experienced from what you just shared, your dyslexia, also forging your career in an environment that was really back then not conducive to women going on their own journeys. So I think, and of course, witnessing your own, your family's, your patients' stories. So I would very much love to hear from you, Dr. Gladys, if you could share some insights with us into the concept of moving spiritually, mentally, and physically as a way to let go of trauma and roadblocks. Again, my mother. <laughs> when my sister and I were in our 90s. We were talking and we'd do this and then we'd say something else and we'd do this again. All of a sudden, we stopped and looked at each other. We said, why do we, what is this we, both of us would be doing? Just something, and just, and we said, Mom. and then we looked at each other and we said, who did that? And we said, Mama did that. And then we said, she said, what did she, what was, it? and then we both t together said, oh, Kuchpurwani which in Hindustani meant, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh. <laughs> and we realized that we had been, we'd gone through our lives just doing this when things happened that we could, like somebody say something mean to, about you or to you. You could take it and bring it in and be so injured by it that it could just stop you where you are. Or 
you could realize it doesn't matter and you could just let it go. And I know that I got through things all, all through my life by doing this very movement and not even realizing at an unconscious level what it was that I was doing. There's a Tai Chi movement that is that. And it actually will let you take this, the whatever you're, you have the opportunity to take in and really damage yourself. Or you can just take it and let it go. It just, which but one, it isn't worth doing anything with. I know that in itself has been a salvaging aspect. And it's helped. I've, t- I've told patients and, about this and so many people because we can do that. And it's not offensive. It's not like saying no, which is offensive and aggressive. But this is just as graceful as anything. And you can just go on. We didn't know that we were doing that. It was so unconscious, so much a part of who and what we were. Yes, that's beautiful. And just another little side note, I spent some of the first years of my life as well in India. My father was had a post in New Delhi, so oh. not quite the jungles. We were just from there. Yes, I have fond memories that oh, yeah. cultivated in me a curiosity for other ways of life, other ways of worshiping the divine spicy foods and just also generosity. I experienced as a little girl, some people who really were economically not in a great situation, they always were so generous and shared what they had. I was, yeah, it was really formative for me. Yeah. yeah. How old were you when you came over? I was about three and a half years old when we moved from West Africa, Sierra Leone. To New Delhi in India, and then I spent about three and a half years there. Oh, yeah. Old enough to really remember. Oh, yes. Old enough to remember how spiky baby elephant's hair feels, to <laughs> how wonderful chapati and dollars. I actually snuck down to, was the workspace of a tailor who worked for the household, made all the beautiful curtains and other things. And he would give me his lunch upon which when my mom discovered that she was not angry at me, but she was like, you can't eat that man's lunch. So I would every day from when she discovered this, I would go down with a little basket filled with sandwiches, which then I exchanged with Goldip. That was the gentleman's name. So I got to enjoy the chapati and dal. He got to enjoy a sandwich and it was a very good deal. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and I find that this staying curious, exposing oneself to new things, that's for me personally has always enriched my life, also greatly enhanced my well-being. I was, thank goodness, I had the great privilege to be immersed in this kind of life of curiosity from very early on. And it's a very rich life. Dr. Gladys, you wrote a book, The Well-Lived Life, and in which you share a lot, it's a lot of wonderful things and also some practical tips and practices that individuals can incorporate into their daily lives to enhance their overall well-being and also longevity. Would you could you share a, just maybe a couple of those tips to our audience 
for our audience and maybe even whet their appetite even more than it already is to take a dive into your book? Yeah, the first is we're here for a reason. Every one of us is here for a reason. And I think that one of the things that is really important, and you mentioned it earlier, is learning to love ourselves. And I think so many of us are just, we don't know what the reason is. Nobody ever mentioned it to us. Nobody ever thought we were here for a reason. But when we begin to think about it, what is the reason I'm here? It's And as adults, as we pay attention to small children who are saying things and recognize what they're saying, it's huge. It's like my... Um, I'll diverge here because I tell stories. My third son, he was four years old, and he comes into the living room, and he says, Mama, I know something. And I says, what's that, Bobby? He says, if I make a friend, and he makes a friend, and he makes a friend, it's going to go all around the world and come back to me. Of course, he's a humanistic psychology person. This is who he is. Yeah. And then my second son, he was seven. He came into the room and he says, he says, I wish Jesus was here. And I said, I do too, but why you? He says, because I've got questions. Mm -hmm. And I said, maybe I could help you. And he says, no, but you don't have the answers. And I said, try me. Maybe I can help. He says, okay, how could God be if he never got started? <laughs> I said, Oh, okay. Maybe it's like a circle. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. He says, I knew you didn't have the answers. No wonder he's a Presbyterian minister. It's this kind of understanding of at a depth level that the young people, and he's not, I mean, these aren't young people now, but the young ones that are coming in, my great grandkids, I have stories about great grand these grandkids that are just awesome. But there are a whole bunch of these young people who are coming in who, if their parents just understand that they're, they really have a reason, they're here for a reason, and we can nurture that and work with it and so on. And the second one, I may not get through all six, but the second one is that life has to move. If life doesn't move, it dies. You can have a trellis, a rose trellis. If it stops someplace, it dies. <clears throat> but we can get so stuck in little things. I was so stuck with the, what's it called, Amb ambiguous pain of dyslexia that I didn't really accept my voice for being my voice until I was 93. And I got the answer in a dream. But until then, I would say these things and write about them. I'd have written books and so on. But I always wanted my, either my husband to check in or somebody to recheck because I really didn't start, trust my voice until I had the dream that let me trust my voice. But it's that concept that life has to keep moving. If it stops moving, it dies. 
And I think it was all of our interest in longevity. That's one of the things that we need to understand is that if we're just trying to live to be old, it, it may not work because that's not who we are. We need to find out who the physician within us is. I knew when I was two that I was a doctor. My sister wouldn't let me play with her dolls because I had mine. I was always having to fix them. There's, <laughs> but it's this kind of, and I have four little granddaughters that are six years old down, but all four of them, when they were two, said they were doctors. And these are, some families come in as painters, some put, come in as teachers, some, our tribe is apparently is on the healing curve of life thing. So it's, but life really has to move. And the third one is that love is the great healer. Without love, you really don't get, you can fix things and have them work for a while. But the real love is what the person within the patient, the physician within the patient can take and work with and true healing can happen. Without sometimes the disease being cured. So the curing a disease isn't necessarily a healing. Sometimes the healing is the actual transformation from within. Yes, and then I don't know how much time we have. It seems like we're about. I am. I have as much time as you have, Doctor Gladys. So it's completely up to you. I want to respect your time. You have a very busy life. I'm grateful for every minute I'm getting with you. Okay, those secrets are all in in my book, and the funny thing about the book title, when we were working for a title for the book with the publishers, uh, and I I didn't like the title, and finally. Someone said to me, we're not talking about you. We're talking about the people who are going to read the book. And that made sense. So the book is written so that you can actually do and understand it if you choose to. Dr. Gladys, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your love with us for people who would like to learn more about you. And I'm, of course, going to put in the show notes where they can get the book. But where? what's the best way to find you? GladysMcGear.com Excellent. And you also have a great Instagram account. I'll put that as well. Thank you. And uh, our foundation is the Foundation for Living Medicine. And Ten we really are going in the process of creating a village for living medicine, and we will do that. That's my 10-year goal, I'm working towards that. I Wherever love it. it is, and I may not be the one who starts it, someone, someone but, that, but the earth needs that. Yes, it does. And for some reason, I think you may very well be the one who lays well, the founding stone. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think so, too. Dr. Gladys, this was such an 
inspiring conversation. You are a reason for me why I have hope and humanity. What a beautiful life and legacy. Thank you for joining us today. It takes one to know one. <laughs> Love you. Love you too. Have a beautiful rest of your day. You too. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 